A very good morning and welcome to the show. Dubai Eye brings you the best of the 7th annual Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. Coming up is a female-focused panel discussion moderated by Rosie Goldsmith. Taking part in the panel are broadcaster, writer, author and host of BBC Radio 4's Woman's Hour, Jenny Murray. Best-selling author of 14 novels, that's Adele Parks, and documentary maker, journalist and novelist, Sarah Shah. They discuss women in Wonderland and the meaning of Wonderland to women. I want to nominate a very special book, and it has absolute relevance to this uh, theme. I want to nominate Alice in Wonderland. Um, This is genuinely one of my favourite books. Um, I love the language, I love the illustrations, I love the book, I love Alice's transformation. Alice, as you know, falls down a rabbit hole, and uh, she arrives in a magical land which has lots of strange animals and people in it. Wonderland means a land or a place of wonderful things or a land of great opportunities where anything can happen. But it can also mean the strange and unexpected. So the title of our event today, Women in Wonderland, is actually, I think, quite a complicated title. Um, And the question we're asking today, um, is Wonderland open to all women? Does it actually exist for women? And how can we achieve it? Now, These are questions to our panel, a trio of quite brilliant and inspiring women. Um, Journalist, author, broadcaster, presenter of the world's most famous programme on women, BBC Radio 4's Woman's Hour, Jenny Murray. And uh, next to Jenny, best-selling, best-loved, author of, I think, 14 novels. That's right. One a year. Absolutely incredible. Um, (laughs) Adele Parks. And next to me is journalist and very brave filmmaker, um, documentary maker, very famous documentaries also um, of Beneath the Veil, um, Death in Gaza, and turned novelist, Cyrus Shah. (laughs) Now, we're going to tackle the Wonderland question, I think, pretty much straight off. Um, is there such a thing as Wonderland for women? No. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I, I'm undoubtedly the oldest uh, member of the panel. Um, so I lived through 70s feminism. Um, and I keep hoping, yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Uh, I started, my feminist light bulb went off when I was... I think I was 15, when my mother, who'd been a wonderful stay-at-home mother, was bored out of her brains. I was the only child. I was busy at school. Dad was busy at work. And she was crawling up the walls. And I said, look, Mum, why don't you get a job? And she said, oh, I can't do that. People will think Dad can't afford to keep us. (laughs) And I said, Mum, it's not about Dad keeping us. It's not about earning pin money. It's about independence. You should earn your own money. You'd enjoy going out to work. So eventually she did. And then there was this one evening when I came home. I was studying for what were then GCEs, now GCSEs. Mum came home from work. She'd done the shopping. I lit the fire. She got, you know, it was cold. It was Barnsley in the north of England. And, and she got the cooking started. And in came Dad. And he was, I have to tell you, the nicest... I've been really lucky to have fabulous men in my life. My grandfather, my father, my husband, my boys, my sons. All terrific. So I'm not a man-hating feminist at all. Uh, 
But he came in, he sat down by the fire that I had lit, he <laughs> took out his copy of the Daily Mail, and he started reading it. We put the food on the table, and he came to the table and he ate, and we started to clear the table, and he went to the chair and carried on reading the paper. And I said, Dad, for goodness sake, why don't you do the washing up? I said, oh, love, I'm so sorry, it never occurred to me. I don't mind helping. And I said, Dad, it's not about helping. It's about doing your share. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, all right then. But I find I still have to say to men, Woman's Hour mm-hmm. did a survey last year called the Chore Wars. We discovered that women still do 80% of the household chores. And men still say, I don't mind helping. Mm-hmm. So please go away and say to your men, you're not helping, love, you're doing your bit. Right. <laughs> Adele, what is your, your, your take on Wonderland? Well, it's very interesting, actually, because um, I'm from the northeast of England, too, um, from a, a working-class family, and so the women always worked. You know, they just literally had to. So um, my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmothers, I was looking at when I was born that I had two great-grandmothers. And the women in our families, we never even had to be introduced to feminism. We were just strong. We were just out there. And, um, and I remember my granddad on his hands and knees polishing. <laughs> which was quite, you know, revolutionary in those days. And, um, and in our family, um, I would say it's 50-50. In fact, my husband sat in the audience, he's going, yeah, she does less than that. <laughs> um, so, but I, you know, so I personally feel I'm in a very good position. I know I am in a tiny, tiny minority. And I know there is a, a huge way to go. Um, from my very sort of local, if you went sort of into my, I live in Guildford now, in the, the, the south of England, um, a sort of suburb of London, really. And honestly, if you went two streets wide, my story is not the story you'd hear anywhere else. And um, obviously, scale that out globally. And I'm absolutely aware that we're nowhere near Wonderland yet, are we? If Wonderland is equal rights. And Wonderland is equal rights. What, I mean, that's what it is. Isn't yeah. it? Well, Sorry, you were to, do, you, do you inhabit a wonderland? Ooh, oh, <laughs> well, in a way, we all do and we all don't. But no, I was going to say, wonderland is equal. Right? I mean, I, I would say, actually, wonderland isn't equal rights, but absolute basic is equal rights. You know, wonderland is then what we make above that, I, w- I would have thought. And it was really interesting hearing Jenny just now, because I come probably from the generation who benefited from, from Jenny and women like her, in that I had an education and my expectations and the expectations of my parents were I would have a career. And I think I knew that, you know, I was really kind of among the first generation that was, that, that was coming up like this. So I was definitely going to take that chance. I was absolutely sure I was not going to miss that ball. And so um, I rushed off to a war zone when I was 18 and I, you know, I was going to become a journalist, I was going to become a war correspondent, I was going to do this, I was going to do that. And I did indeed do most of those things. And then I did the very classic thing of looking around when I was 14 and going, I want a family. <laughs> and, you know, really left it almost too late. And uh, I'm, I'm sure we will end up talking about our families as well. It's another story. But it was lucky to have a little girl. So I think Wonderland is really being able to juggle more than one thing, more than the career. And I think in a way, women, 
find that very difficult still. I've found that difficult. I'm sure all of us have found that very difficult. But in a way, we have more. We have more opportunity because we can have the I hope, I would like every woman to be able to have the career she wants to have. And I would also like her to be able to have the family. And I do think that we have an opportunity to have a really intense relationship. Yeah, men do too, but it, it, the mothering thing is very intense for women. And I would like women to be able to have those things and any other thing they want. I would like the sky to be the limit for women, and I think that's Wonderland, and actually for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we have a box of tissues here on the... Uh, <laughs> and I, said, I just said just before the event, I said, shall I remove the box of tissues? And I said, no, 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 keep, we may all be weeping by the end of this. <laughs> um, make them laugh, make them cry. Make <laughs> <laughs> this is um, this is strong stuff. But, I, but before we move on to the the issues um, as pure issues, if you like, if we stick with your backgrounds a little bit and how you yourselves um, move beyond it, in, in both your cases, in a way, a traditional upbringing. Um, mm. You were saying sort of you know working class families mm. and so on. You know how how you know what was it that um, helped push you forward? Because you you were an only child. Um, and I you still had, am. Yeah. <laughs> and still, um, still are. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm you, now you an only orphan, you know, because yeah. both yeah. my parents are, are dead now. Um, my mother, um, I was David Robert until the day I was born. <laughs> um, both my parents had some disappointment. My mother, that I was Jennifer Susan, not David Robert, uh, and my dad that I couldn't play cricket for Yorkshire. <laughs> But my mother's attitude to me, I think because I was her only child, was so confused. She, she felt I should be the perfect, pretty, well-dressed, well-behaved wife and mother. And at the same time, because I was her only child, I had to be incredibly clever and incredibly successful. So I grew up with this incredibly difficult set of choices. And because she was the stay-at-home mother, and I realized that the things that I hated were hoovering the house, yeah. dusting the ornaments, and baking scones. Some people call them scones, we call them scones in Yorkshire. I could never do it, and I couldn't make a Yorkshire pudding either. Uh, and so I realized that the only way I could go was onto the clever, successful side, that, that housewifery was not for me. Picking up the discussion from this year's Emirates Airline Festival of Literature and we join the conversation with Jenny Murray looking back on her education. I, I did a book called The History of Women Since the Second World War using the Women's Archive as its source material and one of the things I discovered when researching that book was how incredibly lucky I had been to get into a girls grammar school because there was a quota and 70% of boys passed the 11 plus, and the 30% were girls in the year that I did it, which was 1961. You know, when I look back to those times, and we think, oh, we all had equal opportunities, we had equal educational opportunities, we didn't. We had to work really hard, much harder than the boys did. And my saving, really, was that school because it was an all-girls school. We didn't have any boys to tell us we shouldn't be good at this, we shouldn't be good at that, to you know, always have their hands up answering the questions. We had mostly female teachers, and we were all girls. 
And so the assumption was that we could do whatever we wanted and we had to work hard in order to achieve it. And from that point on, I guess it was just luck. I mean, I got into the university that I wanted to go to to study French and drama. Uh, I had opportunities to go into a radio studio for the first time as part of my degree. And the minute I walked in there, I knew that was what I wanted to do. And I knew that I had the essential ingredients for journalism. Uh, I was nosy. I was gobby. <laughs> um, and I loved performing. And I loved English. And I loved writing. So all of those things were right. When I first applied for the BBC, I was rejected. Which I'm so proud of now. <laughs> Um, I went for an interview to be a studio manager, which was on the technical side, because they, my university said, oh, don't bother applying for the journalism training courses. They take two people every year. They're both male, and they're Oxbridge. I was not Oxford or Cambridge. I was Hull, so they weren't going to take a girl from Hull. Um, and I went along to the interview in London, quite terrified mm. being in London. And my dad was a, an electrical engineer, so I said, Dad, you know, I need to know everything there is to know about microphones and how radio works. And he said, OK. So he taught me everything. What I didn't know about the technology of radio was not worth knowing. <laughs> and I got to the interview, and we went through all of this, and I was brilliant, quite brilliant. And then the interviewer said, and what's the Prime Minister doing this morning? <laughs> what had I forgotten to do? Because I was so worried about the technology, I hadn't read the paper. Mm. And he said, oh, terribly sorry, but um, the BBC does expect all its employers to be au fait with current events. So I was out. Uh, and then I went to Bristol. I worked for an employment company, a, an agency. And a job came in for HTV, which was the local television company. They needed a copy taker in the newsroom. And... I sent myself instead of another temporary. Um, and that same week, BBC Radio Bristol was advertising for copy takers. So I applied to BBC Radio Bristol. I now had experience as a copy taker in the newsroom, and I got the job. And that's how it started. And then I came way up. Pole. <laughs> I believe that's, that's a combination of education, circumstance, opportunity, luck. luck. Um, and also personality. I, I remember reading that you, you, wanted, when you went to a James Bond film and you came home and you said to your mum, you wanted to be James Bond. Not no, the reason she found out about it was I, I was 12 and you well, weren't quite supposed to go um, <laughs> until you were 16. So a little group of us decided we would go and we managed to blag our way in. Um, but my mother's next-door neighbour, or our next-door neighbour, Mrs Goodall, I'll never forget her. She tried to teach me the piano and made me do scales, which I hated. And one day I was just sitting at the piano in her house trying to pick out Little Donkey, which was a very popular song at the time. And she came down and said, you're supposed to be doing scales. There's no point you doing a tune until you know your scales. And she literally wrapped my fingers. And so I stopped having piano lessons. Um, and she told my mother, she said, did you know that you're Jennifer? had been to see that James Bond film. And my mother said, of course I knew Jennifer had, had been to the James Bond film. She tells me everything. And then came home and said, did you go to that James Bond film? <laughs> I said, yeah, I did. Sorry, I should have told you. 
And, and she said, and what did you think of it? I said, oh, I didn't want to be the girl. She was gorgeous. I wanted to be James Bond. <laughs> Fabulous story. Um, did, and Adele, talk us through your, um, you know, your story as well. How you, I think it does, it's I how you it's became really successful, really. How you became, that's very nice. how you reached here today um, in Dubai. Okay, so I think it does, the, the very beginning is always a good place to begin, isn't it? So I was the second child out of two, and I was the, I was the second daughter. Now, the first daughter, very annoyingly, was beautiful and well-behaved and, you know, perfect, bless her. But I think she had been so, and I think quite often this does happen with the first child, you know, there's two parents and all that effort can go into it and all that. And, um, and I came out and apparently, their words, angry and ugly. <laughs> and um, and I, I mean, I would refute the angry thing, I'm just saying, but I was pretty ugly, I've seen the photos. And um, <laughs> I was quite sort of hairy and squally and, you know, just messy. And... Um, and I continued to be angry and ugly for, throughout my early sort of, you know, zero to five, which for girls in, in the 70s, you know, not being pretty was quite a big deal. And so with the oldest one, it was constantly how pretty Andre is. And, you know, they gave her a pretty name, Andre. Adele's a good name too. Um, and so they'd sort of look at me and go, I hope she's clever. <laughs> and, and I just remember thinking, go on then, I will be. And um, all funny, they used to, you know, I was the entertainer. That's what I did to kind of get a bit of attention and to get a bit of approval um, because I think it is a women's thing and I'm not saying it's right now. I wish it wasn't the case, but we do try to, to be noticed because we're not naturally noticed and to be approved of. Um, and so I went down the sort of funny and clever route. And so I, was, I went to a local comprehensive. The grammar school system had finished in my area and um, it was pretty awful in some ways and pretty good in others in so much as there was the odd caring teacher that was delighted in a sort of dead poet society way delighted to alight on anybody who was prepared to read a book and <laughs> you know so so they, they sort of focused on me and I'm, I'm very grateful for that because I did have a number of teachers that that sort of thought I could could go far and do anything and actually in fairness to my father who thought I was you know ugly and angry and he did and bless him I remember it's hilarious because I've just looked down and thought my nails are painted just about to say this story he one day looked at me you know was always revising and so I got my hair was always scruffy and you know I was always a mess and um one day he just said to me have you thought of painting your nails? And I don't know if he thought perhaps that was something that, you know, I could do. And I kind of went, no, I haven't got time for painting nails. You know, and, um, and even now my husband says, you know, I'm not a girly girl at my wedding. I forgot to put lipstick on. I, I just did. It was only the, there was only the three of us, me, my husband and our child at the wedding. So I really felt they knew what I looked like. It was fine. Um, you know, was, <laughs> we were all fine. And um, yeah, so I was at, I remember my father actually saying, to me you could be he was an engineer too actually it was interesting he said to me you could be anything you could be an engineer and bless him I realized what he was doing there uh, was you know that that's what he'd risen to and that's what he'd wanted for me and that's what he saw as the pinnacle and actually my fight was to try and do something <laughs> more traditionally feminine to actually go to university to study English because he thought that was a bit artsy-fartsy and where was that leading and what a terrible shame, what a waste of a good brain and all of that. And he put me in for this. He worked for ICI, this huge big company that pretty much everybody in the northeast of England worked for. And um, he put me in for this scholarship 
and it was a full scholarship if I was prepared to study engineering and it was a 15% or I think 20% if I wanted to study the arts and so my fight was to say no I am studying the arts I want to read that is what I do I am going to be a writer and he turned to my mum and go it's the Irish and you lot that's turned out bad <laughs> you know <laughs> and um and actually that was part of it you see my mum um and her mother and her grandmother were all alive and kicking and all the ants and so a lot of my um childhood was sort of sat around listening to eternal gossip of who'd done what largely in our family sometimes outside our family um and the stories and i think that was part of it for me what was being said what wasn't being said because in those days a lot wasn't said babies just popped out um and so the the combination actually of my very sort of uh, uh, sort of ambitious father and my the oral tradition that my mum gave me i think they just combined quite beautifully for me and i was i was very lucky so f first in our family to go to university as well that that was uh, a, a great honor big pressure mm. i remember just working in fact it's funny my university friends at the time you know because it was in the, it was in the late 80s and there, were, there was a lot of good times to be had i missed them um, I was inside at the, at the library throughout all the good times of the 80s, apparently. And all my friends now say, but wasn't it worth it, Adele? And it genuinely was. I mean, it's so old-fashioned, but hard work pays off. Listening to highlights from the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature from earlier this year and conversation panel discussion with Jenny Murray, Adele Parks and Sarah Shah. We pick up the conversation when Adele Parks talks about personal failure, hard work, resilience and success. I do agree that there is a little bit of luck as well. There is that resilience. I've been turned down from endless things. In fact, I, I mean, I, I, I love it that, I've, you know, I've loved it that I've failed because if you don't fail, how do you know you've succeeded? You know, I, I mean, the world is full of contrasts and all of that was, was very important to me. Um, I, I remember failing my French O-level, for instance, which completely limited the number of universities I could go to to study English. Um, but that kind of thing we weren't taught at a comprehensive. They didn't teach you how to get to university. In fact, they did keep suggesting I ought to be a nurse. And even mm. when I said, I do faint at the sight of blood, they went, don't worry about it. <laughs> Why would I not worry about that? Quite a key issue. So it was very traditional. I'm not very good at listening to the word no. I'm very polite about ignoring the word no, but I do ignore the word no quite often if it, you know, if it, if it relates to my life. I will. I realise nobody cares about my life the way I do, and so you you've got to find your way through it all. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Now, Syrah, was was it similar for you in yeah, any I, way at all? Yes, actually, funny enough, as they're both speaking with two different experiences, there's a lot of head nodding. Going yeah, on, I'm picking out it? one thing that that was key for me, which is that the obstacles I faced and the limitations that I felt I had within myself were what actually ended up making me stronger or making me able to do things. And I've, I've never spoken about this particular thing before, uh, but I want to speak about it today because there may be someone else in the room or a few people in the room who have the same problem that I had. I was cripplingly shy. And when I say cripplingly shy, I mean I was the funny kid that couldn't speak. So I very much know the experience of having things going on in my head but literally being struck dumb, not, not having a voice. And 
I had that for years, and I just want to say to anyone who has that, it's not necessary for life. You can work with it. Um, but when I think of it now, it formed me massively because as I grew up, you know, I was, of course, bullied, of course. Of course, couldn't tell about it because, you know, the kids who are picked on are the kids who can't tell. Um, it was a massive thing in my life. I was, you know, I was bright, but I couldn't even put up my hand in class. So teachers tended to overlook me. You know, it was a huge thing. I went to grammar school too. I remember having to go to see the headmistress and, you know, it was something I hadn't done or whatever it was. And I remember just sitting there, not being able to speak. So I know that feeling of really not having a voice. And then I remember when I um, became an adolescent, I thought, I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, I'm not pretty enough to find boys just by being pretty. I'm going to have to speak. I'm going to have to. <laughs> I'm going to have to do it. How am I going to do it? And, uh, and I, when I was 17, I went to a university um, course in Cairo, and it was an American system, and that's much more relaxed, and there was a school um, newspaper. So I went around, I joined, and I went around interviewing people, and gradually I learned that I could um, speak to people if I was interviewing them. So I f had a point. So I started writing that way. So already one limitation had led me in one direction. And then, and I think I was so determined, as I said, to have a career and do things. And I wanted to travel. I wanted to go to Afghanistan, where part of my family were from. And Afghanistan was at war. And I thought, well, I, I'll become a war correspondent then. Because in a way, when you have no choices, you have every choice. Because you are going to have to become a rebel to do anything. And so I, it didn't matter, you know, becoming a nurse or becoming a war correspondent, it was the same to me. I was going to face the same problem, which is I couldn't open my voice, I couldn't uh, open my mouth, I couldn't talk to people. So um, I went off to supposedly to Pakistan, um, and I'd been out once before there when uh, I was younger, and um, my, my family in Pakistan had tried at that point to arrange a marriage for me, and I'd obviously been brought up, brought up in the West, and that was all a... Um, a bit of a debacle. But I gradually re had realized on that trip when I'd been 17, 18, that in order to exist in Pakistan and Afghanistan, I was going to have to be an iconoclast. I was going to have to be a rebel because I didn't come out of any one culture. I was going to have to break rules, which was a terrifying thing for me. So that was one really enormous lesson I learned. And then when I was 21, I went out and uh, wrote my mother a letter uh, met up with, uh, with Mujahideen by, um, I'd got loads of letters from newspapers saying I was a stringer because I discovered that if you went to a newspaper and said, can I be your correspondent? They went, no. And then if you said, can I write you occasional stories? They went, yes. And if you said, well, can you leave me a letter saying that? They said, yes. And I think it still works today. So I had a pile of these letters. So, and, and I went to the, there were seven parties of Mujahideen there, and they had long beards and big turbans, you know. And I was a little chit of a girl who knew nothing about anything, really, nothing about journalism, nothing about Afghanistan. And I sort of, but I was, I was frightened anyway. So it was no matter to me if I went to this whole load of Mujahideen men with giant beards, or if I stayed at home and went to a dinner party, I was still frightened. You know, I just had to work with that. <laughs> so I took these letters, and I said many journalists come to you and they're representing the Times or this or that but I am representing all these places <laughs> uh, <laughs> will you take me to Afghanistan and they kind of looked at me like you little shrimp and they went yeah alright and I wrote my mother a letter saying by the time you 
breathe this, I will be in the mountains of Afghanistan. And I remember I posted it, we were on a Hilux, I was on the back of a Hilux with all these guys with big turbans and big beards, and I put it through the letter, I said, can you stop a sec, put it through the letter, and then we crossed the border into Afghanistan. And... Um, and walked and walked and walked, you know, I was with a group of men, there was, uh, you know, it was very, very stressful, but amazing, and we came under fire, my first trip, we came under mortar fire, and um, that they were, um, they were Afghans, so they weren't that frightened, but I realized that I could deal with the fear, and then later when I reported and came under fire with Western reporters, I realized that I approached fear in a very different way, because I was used to operating in, in a state of fear. I was used to that. And that gave me massive confidence. I thought, there's something I can do. So going back to the question of wonderland, if we lived in a total wonderland, maybe we wouldn't encounter our own obstacles. So I don't know, do we want a total wonderland? Maybe we'd all become, maybe we wouldn't become what we could. I, I once worked with someone who was... Um, a director, studio director on, on uh, television news, who was an uh, um, incredibly nice guy, incredibly good-looking, um, and had obviously sailed through life with, you know, the kind of guy that men are nice to because he's got no side, women are nice to because he's good-looking. He was ever so nice. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you're quite nice. And then after about a week of working with him, I thought, there's nothing to you because he'd never been through the fire. He'd never actually been through that. So for God's sake, if you have problems, if you're shy, if you think you're not clever enough, if you think you're not pretty enough, if you think you've got family problems and obstacles, the obstacles are, are what are going to help you. The obstacles are going to make you what you, you will become, I think. Anyway, so it sounds a bit preachy. It sounds a bit preachy, but it's not. It, did, it was my case. We do evolve because yeah. of obstacles. Ev you know, every species does. That's simply how it is. Yeah. You're amazing. makes us stronger. I've actually <laughs> never shared that before. I've never confessed. I've never got confident enough to confess mm. how shy I was. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the strange thing is, mm. I found that I could only really talk to people when I was interviewing them. And I, I hate parties. Mm. I cannot go to a party unless I'm with a couple of people that I know really well and I can sit in a corner and talk to them. I still find it incredibly difficult to walk into a room with, with I'm the worst person at making contacts because I, I just don't know how to do it. Mm. And that's that sort of, now come on Jenny, you know, you're just a working class girl from Barnsley. You know, you, you can't mix with all these sharp people, but put them in a studio mm. and I can ask them yeah. anything. But many, many, many journalists share that feeling um, of, you know, we're all okay being the interviewer, but as soon as you're centre stage, um, it's, it's much more difficult. You know, we're happy to be behind the scenes. But interesting, I mean, all, all um, these ladies, I mean, don't we wish we'd met them all before and heard these stories before, but I'm going to be fired up now with all of that. It's absolutely wonderful. Listening to a session from the Lit Fest with Jenny Murray, Adele Parks and Sarah Shah. Joining the conversation is moderator Rosie Goldsmith, who's talking to the panel about the hugely successful BBC4 radio programme, Woman's Hour. But the, all of you have appeared on, both of you appeared on Woman's Hour, of course, which is, an inc mm. you know, for all of us, I'm sure you as well, if you've been able to hear it online or read some of the stories, um, have been empowered by that programme. It's an incredibly important programme. And in fact, just very briefly, is it, it was the first programme I ever worked on for the BBC. And I had to overcome 
enormous fear to even approach Woman's Hour because I wanted to be on the BBC and um, that's all I wanted in life. And I was this shy person as well who couldn't speak, allegedly, supposedly. And, you know, and I overcame that fear and it was the first ever piece I did, which was a long time ago. But um, thank you, Jenny. Well, it, <laughs> I, I remember because I was brought up on Woman's Hour. I mean, I was born in 1950. It was 1987 you started um, presenting the programme. Yeah. And then you were listening to it from... But, 19... but from 19... Well, it started in 1946. Mm. So every day... It used to be on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Every day, my mum would get on with the housework in the morning. We'd have lunch. She would sit down at 2 o'clock in the afternoon to listen to Woman's Hour. And every so often, as I got, you know, sort of toddly... She would say, oh, oh, uh, just pop into the kitchen and get so-and-so. And that's when the programme gave a health warning. You know, <laughs> you may, you may, uh, we're going to be talking about the menopause or uh, <laughs> about birth. Uh, you may not want your children to hear this. And so she'd send me off. Um, and I didn't hear those bits. But uh, that was Marjorie Anderson. I lived through Marjorie Anderson. Uh, and then Sue McGregor. I listened to it all my life. It was part of yeah, my culture. It's where I learned a lot of, you know, my women's politics. Uh, and then I sat in a studio one day and they said, now woman's out with Jenny Murray. And I went, oh, I can't do it. You know, absolutely terrified. It was always ten deep breaths. That's what I was told. Ten deep well, breaths. Well, I, I had a lovely tutor when I first went into local radio. Um, his name was Dougie Chalmers and he said, Jenny, just learn this. He said, you're speaking to one person. Yeah, and the minute you know the mic is about to open, smile. Mm. Because the audience will hear it. And, I, and I, I don't know who you, that one person was. You might, that one person was always my mother, which had its complications. I want to ask you about, uh, quickly about, I do want to talk about these three books, because these are absolutely key, crucial to your conversation. But what role did your mothers play, very briefly, in, in who you are now? Mm. You see, my so mum was cripplingly shy, very shy woman. She'd married at 18 um, and had her babies very young, and my sister was very shy. So from the moment I could talk, I did the introductions, and I just did. And my mum, I remember sort of her fingers in my back pushing me forward, and I was the icebreaker. And so I find that very easy now. That's what I do now. I introduce people all the time. I'm always the person that says, come and join us. This is so-and-so. You'd, you'd get on because you have this in common. Um, and I, I facilitate and I think that is because of my, of, of my mother. Um, she, was, she is gritty and hardworking. Um, again, that hardworking thing comes out. But I felt she was and is very self-effacing and it hasn't done her any favours. Mm. She could have had a bigger and brighter life, I feel. But of course, her circumstances were very different. Her, her, the support is that network. the generation. I mean, yes. yes, it's generation. It's her her own parental support. So she put all her energies into me and my sister. And you know, I'd like to think she thinks it's paid dividends. Hope it has. Um, but I, you know, I feel that I remember going to university and thinking this is perfect if only my mum was with me. And she was my, you know, at that time I thought she was my best friend, and it would just be. Not because I needed her there for me, but I thought she would have just loved it. Mm -hmm. In fact, I got my mum to do a degree the, the year after I started my oh, degree. Gosh. And she did do her own English degree, and she has 
got yes. a degree now. And, but <laughs> I literally, I remember sort of teaching her the route to go to her university and driving her there and her screaming at me that she didn't want to do this and it was a stupid idea and I was stupid and, you know, it was all that. And I just kept saying, you just are worried about being in the car. And I knew it was. It was the, the, the drive, which was about a 20-minute drive from our house to the local university. So she applied. She got through the interview. She was going. But then the last obstacle was she didn't want to drive. And we drove one day, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And then I'd get out and go, you drive a bit. You drive a bit more. She passed a test. But it was just this not a route she usually took mm. and uh, she still looks back and I think those were some of the best years of her life doing that that uh, mm. tertiary mm. education yes so an important very important woman in your life yeah and what about your mother's massive in my life I think everyone's mother is massive in some way or other and my, my mother died almost exactly a year ago and it's interesting because I've had a year obviously it's as Jenny knows an awful time because you take a whole lifetime of experience with your mother and you sort of process it and that's really been happening but when my mum was alive, she was a real larger-than-life figure, sort of opposite of your mother. She, when I was a kid, she, she was kind of the one who turned up. She used to say, she, she was born in India, half Indian. She loved bright colours. And, you know, I'd be in Kent, you know, where everyone was wearing blue and grey. And I wanted to disappear. I was one of those children that wanted to disappear. My mother would be wearing yellow and orange and green. And she'd come with a huge fur hat. And she'd be the one who kind of stood up and started clapping and sh uh, slapping uh, things during Cossack dancing at Sadler's Wells Theatre. And, you know, people behind me would be we should be quiet. And she'd be going, no, no, the Cossacks do it. We must do it too. <laughs> so I'd be like, Ooh. But again, now she's gone. And, and, you know, we often had a difficult relationship. And I now look back and I think, wow, I was pulling my end of the rope. You know, she and I had our battles. She once said to me, I got a good book deal for something. And I phoned her up, you know, happy for, you know, to get my approval. So she said, oh, darling, that's wonderful. You know, that's absolutely wonderful because now you'll be able to afford a really good plastic surgeon <laughs> so you can have a nose job so you can get yourself a man <laughs> but I'm afraid I realized that I since she died I realized that in fact I was actually pulling my end of the rope as well and indeed telling that story while she was alive and even now um, and I realized I think I already realized when my daughter Elsa was born very disabled, I, realized, I began to realize how deep my mother's love was for me and what she'd given me, really. So, I mean, wild character, but mm. fantastic person, actually. Oh, no, I don't mind about the nose job, just a story now. <laughs> I have to be careful where I tell that one. <laughs> now, um, Jenny, your, um, your autobiography is actually called Memoirs of a Not-So-Dutiful Daughter, which goes back to Simone de Beauvoir, who's the dutiful daughter. You weren't a dutiful daughter, but you had the, your relationship with your mother was... Uh, Deeply complex. Deep, okay, you said it. <laughs> so, briefly tell us about... about your mum? My mother, uh, after I'd encouraged her to go out and get a job, um, got a job in the local town hall. And my mother and I did share one characteristic, and that was our nosiness. Uh, so I satisfied that through journalism. And my mother satisfied it through knowing everybody's business in <laughs> Barnsley. <laughs> and when I would go home, we'd She'd say, oh, come on, let's go to the market. Barnsley has the best market in the world. Um, fantastic market, famous all over uh, Britain. And uh, she said, we'll go to the market. Um, 
And she and my grandmother, when, when I was tiny, um, used to go every Saturday afternoon. They'd get the two o'clock bus uh, and they'd go into town and they'd wander around the market and they'd le- they, these were parsimonious Yorkshire women. They'd leave their shopping until last thing in the afternoon when they knew the stallholders, because it was Saturday, wanted to get rid of everything. So they bought fish, they bought crabs, they bought fruit and vegetables unbelievably cheaply and would come home triumphant, you know, with their, with their shopping. But my mother would also say, come on, let's go to the market. So off we would go to the market. And rather like you, I, I would sort of stand behind her as she would speak to every single person we met. Oh, hello. Oh, oh, is this your Jennifer? Oh, hasn't she grown? Of course I've grown. (laughs) I'm 17, I'm 18, I'm 25, I'm 30. You know, on and on this same conversation would go. And she would show off about me. And... On the other hand, when I started to do quite well in journalism and I worked in television, I was okay for a few years because I did local radio and regional television in Southampton, so thank goodness she couldn't see it. And then I went to the network. I went to Newsnight, which is a very big current affairs programme in Britain. Um, And I would uh, present the programme and she would ring me immediately the programme finished. This was maybe 11.30 at night, and the phone would ring in the office. Hi, Mum. How are you? I'm fine, love. Uh, what did you think of that interview I did with, uh, let's say, Norman Tebbit, who was a cabinet minister at the time? Oh, oh, sorry, love. Uh, were you interviewing Norman Tebbit? I'm sorry. I, I honestly wasn't really listening to what you were saying. But you know that red top you had on? <laughs> uh, your colouring's a bit high for that sort of thing. And, and your fringe has got a bit long. And you do know your eyes are your best feature, don't you? Well, get it cut so that we can see your eyes. And, you know, every time I went home, it would be, oh, you've put a bit of weight on. Or, oh, you've lost too much weight, you're thin. Because I've always gone up and down like a yo-yo, probably thanks to her and her cakes and her scones. Uh, so never, ever, until just before she died... I went to see her in hospital. She had Parkinson's disease. And she had begged me for months to help her die, which, of course, was not an option, um, because it's still illegal. And a very good florist had just opened outside Barnsley. And I walked into the shop, and I spoke. People very rarely recognised me, but these two delightful guys said, Oh, you, Jenny Murray, we oh, listen to Woman's Heart. I said, Yes. <laughs> Yes, I am. Uh, don't worry, 40% of the audience is male. And, and they produced the most gorgeous bouquet imaginable. And I took it to the hospital. And my mother was really in the last throes of the Parkinson's disease. And I put them in a vase. And as I was leaving, she said, you know, Jen, those flowers are beautiful. And so are you. Oh. I was 56. <laughs> And it was the first unconditional compliment she had paid me throughout my life. Thank goodness we kept the tissues. (laughs)
Listening there to a talk given by Jenny Murray, Adele Parks and Sarah Shah during this year's Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. The session was moderated by Rosie Goldsmith and to learn more about the authors and the books they published, visit dubaii1038.com forward slash litfest sessions.